Today is going to be predominantly an introduction to the book, and then we're just going to continue on as we gather week in and week out, Lord willing, and work through the book of Ephesians. As we get into a new year, can you imagine it's actually 2024? How many of you ever thought that you would ever make it to 2024? I have to say, when I was in high school, I expected by now we would have hovering cars. You know, and then you'd be able to kind of fly a bit more than just drive on the roads, but we just haven't gotten there yet, but it's amazing that we're here. But oftentimes when we approach a new year, we tend to reflect on the year past and we look to the new year, and sometimes we look and we can't wait for all the exciting things that are going to be happening through the course of the new year. And I trust that the Lord is going to bring many exciting things to us as a church and to us as individuals through the course of the new year. But I think the older you get, the more realistic sometimes you get and you realize that the new year may not always be as exciting or as positive as you think. So you kind of begin to look at maybe some of the hardships that you might face in the new year. And nobody wants to really think about that, but I think that that actually um, will be helped, I think, by studying this book. As we dig into God's word, no matter what we face through the course of 2024, I believe that God's word will help us, will guide us, will sustain us, will equip us. And the book of Ephesians is a beautiful, beautiful book to work through, and so I'm excited to get into it. Some writers who have written commentaries on the book of Ephesians have called it the Believer's Bank or the Christian's Checkbook or the Treasure House of the Bible. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that, you know, God's going to make you healthy and wealthy and wise this year. That's not what we mean by the Believer's Checkbook, by the way. That's not the gospel that I'm going to be preaching anyway from this pulpit. But what they're talking about is the richness that the Christian has in Christ and how that's just explained so beautifully through the book of Ephesians. And so I trust that we're going to uh, learn much as we work through it. As we've celebrated the holidays, many of us we listen to Christmas music and we watch Christmas movies. How many of you watch some Christmas classics over the holidays? Either most of you can't raise your hand because you're too tired or you don't want to admit it. I will admit one of my favorite Christmas movies is, is, is um, Holiday Inn, but I, I like White Christmas as well. And in White Christmas... There's a song that Bing Crosby sings. It was written by Irving Berlin. And they were talking about some circumstances that were kind of keeping them up at night. And Bing Crosby begins to sing this song. He says, when I'm worried and I can't sleep, I count my blessings instead of sheep. How many of you know that song? Some of you that know it are old. And that's okay. Because then I don't feel so bad. <laughs> Some of you are young and you might not know that song because you've never watched that movie, but he says, and I, I fall asleep counting my blessings when my bankroll is getting small and I think of when I had none at all. And you might be thinking, well, that's now even, so. 
He says, I fall asleep counting my blessings. That's a secular song, it, but it is talking about the blessings that people have. And um, you could say, well, there's a much better song, and I think that there is. You count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. That, that's a song that we, many of us, grew up singing, a hymn that we sang. The book of Ephesians opens up for us the blessings as Christians that we have in Christ. And we're going to be talking about the blessings that we have in Christ as we work through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is kind of broken down in two parts. It's theological. We learn a lot of theology and doctrine early on in the book, which then bleeds into the practical, which is how the book kind of the letter ends. And so I think that this is important for us to understand. The doctrine should not be dry and boring, but it should be absolutely imperative to know and know well because it impacts our practical daily lives. And Paul lays this out for us as we read through and study the book of Ephesians, and I trust that we will learn these things. Let's start in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in as we are introduced to the book of Ephesians a little bit more, and then we're challenged, I trust, by some verses this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the richness that we have in Christ. As we think about this letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, God, we pray that we would realize that these are words that you have recorded for us. This is your word for us as much today as it was for the believers in Paul's day. Lord God, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to what it is that you want to teach us, what you want to impact us with this morning as we get into your word. Lord God, I pray that you guide my thoughts and my words, that they would be in line with Scripture, that they would not be a distraction, they would not take away, but that they would be useful for you as you convey your message to each and every one of us this morning, God, we thank you for all of the blessings that you have showered upon us. And I know that we have much to, to celebrate and be thankful for and to be encouraged about, but even as the new year has started, already there are those in our church who have faced already difficult days. And God, we... We desperately need you each and every day. Whether it's a good day or it's a difficult day, we need you no matter what. We pray that you would teach us through your word today, that we would be just continually blessed as we dig into the book of Ephesians and learn much, but not just learn information, but that you would impact us so that we would apply it to our lives as the book of Ephesians demonstrates, shows forth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 14 verses with you. We're not going to deal with all 14 verses. There's a ton of stuff just within the first 14 verses of Ephesians, really in the Greek, it's almost like one long sentence, surprisingly enough. 
We're really only going to zero in on the very introduction to the book of Ephesians, but let's read through because there is a statement, a phrase that I want you to really pay close attention to, the, the amount of times that it comes up, because we're going um, we're, we're to kind of touch on it this week, but then we're going to continue with it next week, Lord willing. And so follow with me here. Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us, with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we have also received an inheritance, because we we're predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. I think maybe you can see why we're not actually going to cover all these verses in one Sunday. Let you know a little secret. We're probably going to take a few Sundays to cover just these first few verses because of how much doctrinal content is in this section alone. Some things that maybe we need to understand a little bit. For us, um, this letter was written to the Ephesian Christians. It has a number of similarities. Actually, there's a number of verses in Ephesians that are pretty well word for word the same as what was written in the book of Colossians. I think there's some 26 verses that are pretty much identical between the two books. It was written when Paul was in prison in Rome, somewhere around AD 60 to 62. As I said, it's 
described as the Christian's checkbook or the treasure house of the Bible. It's a letter that tells of our riches, our inheritance, our fullness as believers in Christ. Just in the verses that we read, we've heard about things like our adoption as believers in Christ. We've heard about the redemption that we have through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We've heard about the sealing of the Holy Spirit that we have. If you noticed, and I hope that you do, or you did, you will see that the phrase, in Christ, or something similar to that. For instance, at the end of uh, verse 6, it says, in the beloved one. They're mentioned several times, the phrase, in Christ. There's so much about who we are in Christ tied in just this first section. This book was, or this letter was written to the believers in Asia Minor, really the city of Ephesus, but it was really meant for the believers at large. Um, Paul spent a little bit of time in, in, in Ephesus in his first missionary journey, spent a lot of time in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. Um, I asked Dinah to put up a, a, a picture of a map so you get an idea of where Ephesus is and um, what it looks like. I, I'm not sure how well you can see it, but kind of in the center of that map, you have the city of Ephesus, kind of smack dab in the middle. And those red lines that are up there are Paul's third missionary journey where he traveled and he spent a lot of time in Asia Minor. And he wrote this letter to go to the church of Ephesus, but then ultimately to be read in the other churches to teach the believers here. Something else that maybe um, we don't know or you've learned and maybe you've, you've not thought about, but Ephesus was a major trading center. It was very cosmopolitan. It was actually a city that had Jews and Gentiles alike, a lot of different groups that lived there. And many of you may know its claim to fame. It had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there. And where I think that this book is intensely practical for us today is because back then, in that city, they had the temple to Artemis or Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And those of you that play the game Seven Wonders have probably seen this picture because that's one of the ones that is in that particular game. But we, we're not talking about a game here. We're talking about the fact that this temple was a temple to a pagan god and in this temple were some hundred plus temple prostitutes. And prostitution was a part of the worship of Diana. And so this city had a reputation for promiscuity. And as we look at the believers that lived in this city, the environment in which they were living for Christ, and we think about our day today, it shouldn't really be all that much of a surprise to us that what we're going to learn in the book of Ephesians has a huge impact for us today and is intensely practical. As we live in a very pagan society in Canada today, as the believers in Ephesus did then. So I want us to just focus on the first two verses today. We're really just kind of 
dipping in just a little bit. The first thing that I want us to focus on is Paul in his writing to these believers, and, and I think it's important that we understand right off the bat that, that not that Paul's identifying himself as the author of this letter, that's significant, but I want us to see how Paul actually starts right off. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Paul, a believer, but an apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing to a group of believers. But I, I think it's important that we understand that Paul didn't claim to be an apostle because he aspired to be an apostle. And Paul's not pulling rank on these people by saying, you need to listen to me because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. But I think that the, the, the phrase, by God's will, is so important as we continue to understand even these very first verses in chapter 1. Paul very much is going to come back to on a regular basis the fact that these things that he teaches them about are accomplished by the will of God. That God does the work. That God is the initiator. That God is sovereign over all of these things. That it's not something that Paul accomplished on his own. It's not something that the believers have because of how spectacular they were. But it's by God's will. It's in Christ Jesus. It's not something we can claim in and of ourselves. And Paul right off the bat says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I, I want us to think about Paul's conversion for a second. Just let me read Acts chapter 9 for a second. If you remember, Paul had quite a testimony. He was a faithful Jew. He was well-schooled in the Old Testament. He was zealous for God to the point where he was persecuting Christians, those who follow Jesus Christ as their Messiah, to the point where he was traveling to Damascus to arrest people, to bring them back so that they could stand before the Sanhedrin. And as he's traveling on the road to Damascus, he has a confrontation with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, it says this, As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He replied, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So he goes and he goes into the city and God calls Ananias, a believer, to go to Paul. And Ananias says, but Lord, you know who this character is, right? Paul reassures Ananias. In verse 15, this is what the Lord says to Ananias. Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, to kings and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went to the house and he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus Christ who has appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
This was God's will. This is God's working in Saul's life. Saul wasn't seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't the one that was coming after a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Lord initiated that. The Lord saved Paul. The Lord called Paul to be a missionary to the Gentiles. It was by God's will that Paul was doing what God wanted him to do. And Paul writes the Ephesian believers and he says, you know what, I'm an apostle because of by God's will, not mine. I'm not some self-appointed apostle. This is what God has called me to and I am writing to you as God's apostle. Far cry from what we hear in church circles today. Those that call themselves apostles are not apostles. Paul was an apostle because God called him to be an apostle and he met the qualifications of one. Paul writing to the church, certainly he's speaking authoritatively. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this letter. This is God's word to these believers. God was using Paul to instruct these believers both doctrinally but also practically, and we also are benefiting from this. And as Paul is writing to these believers, this is what he says next. He says, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. And this is what I want us to kind of just hang our hats on for a little bit this morning. Lord was challenging me through this passage. He's been challenging me for a bit. As I look at 2023, as I look back at 2023 personally, and as I look towards 2024, as I was studying this particular passage out, the Lord was challenging me as I believe He's challenging us as Christians about how it is that we're going to live out our faith in 2024. As Paul's writing these believers, this is what he says. He says, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus. So I want us to look at three things. First of all, I want us to look at the fact that Christians here are called saints. Okay, this is significant. Sometimes I don't think we think about that very much. I know, at least for me personally, sometimes... When I'm wrestling with, with sin in my life, I, I focus an awful lot more on the fact that I'm a sinner saved by grace than the fact that the Bible actually calls me a saint. It's easy to kind of focus on where we fall short, and I don't think that we should really miss the mark on that because we do need to be reminded of the gospel in our lives on a regular basis that it's Jesus who saved us. It's, that, it's God that's done the work in our lives. It's us that need him desperately. But the Bible actually calls believers saints. And, 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 and Paul writing to these believers, he says that you are faithful saints in Christ Jesus. And I think that there's significance to that. I believe that Paul's not just throwing that out there to try to encourage them or uh, uh, build them up just by, uh, you know, um, throwing out some... some some compliments to them. He's reminding them of what they are called to be. They're called saints. What is a saint? A saint is someone who is sanctified, someone who is described as a holy one. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, 
By God's grace, we are saints. It is a state into which God has called us. But when we're talking about saints being people who are sanctified, that helps us to understand that we are sanctified or set apart from sin, but we are also set apart to God. If I call myself a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I am, well, if I've trusted Christ as my Savior, I am a saint. And as a sanctified person, that means that I am set apart from sin. Sin should not be something that describes my life. I should strive in such a way that sin is not what's characterizing my life. I'm, I'm staying away from it. Paul descri- says to the, the, the Thessalonian Christians to flee sexual immorality. Another passage of Scripture, Paul says to the believers to flee youthful lusts in Timothy. What, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be getting away from sin. We're supposed to be running from it. We are supposed to be staying away from it. It should not be something that is characterizing our lives. Why? Because we are to be set apart from sin. 1 Peter 1.15 calls us to live holy lives. Also, 2 Peter 3.11 says that. In, in 1 Peter 2, 5, and 9, we are actually called a royal priesthood or a holy nation. That's the way that believers are described. Paul's writing to these believers, and he's identifying them as individuals who have been set apart from sin because they have given their lives to Christ, but they are set apart to God. That their focus is serving God. Their ser- that their focus is doing exactly what God has called them to do. We as believers are to be set apart from sin and set apart to God. Theologians state this by saying that no one is justified who is not regenerated. 1 Corinthians uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a very familiar passage to us. It has the phrase, in Christ here, but it also conveys this, the, what we're talking about in this particular section. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We can't be a saint if we're not in Christ. And if we're in Christ, then we have been regenerated. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. And as theologians put it, this is not my phrase, this is a quote, theologians state this by saying that no one is justified who is not also regenerated. That is, we are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by faith which is alone. All Christians are saints, and all saints must increasingly be saintly. It's a far cry from what the world has as its mentality as a saint. Talk to somebody on the street and they, you ask them what they think a saint is, they may throw a saint in front of a particular name. Well, you know, I know Saint Jude, so-and-so, so-and-so. Or, uh, well, you know, I know a, a real good person in my neighborhood. They do a lot of great things for their community. Boys, they're, they're a real saint. You know, all they attribute is good deeds to a person who doesn't necessarily know Christ as Savior and say, well, they're pretty saintly. 
If you ask some people their definition of a saint, they may actually kind of ridicule and mock that because they think it's ridiculous. Some Christians that may be from a particular church background that when they think of saints, they think of somebody who has been venerated, someone who has done at least one miracle in their lives and some individual, key individual in the church has brought it to the church uh, leadership to consider this person as a saint and they'll defend the actions of that individual and then somebody else will be brought up and they're, descri- or they're called the devil's advocate who will try to tear down the works of that individual so that they wouldn't be considered saintly and eventually the church leadership will say, no, we're going to venerate this person and we're going we're to declare them to be a saint. And so you have Saint Mother Teresa, or you have Saint this or that or the other. Guess what? The church doesn't determine who the saints are. Saints are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. People who are set apart from sin and set apart to Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 actually even talks about this, talks about the fact that by grace we are saved through faith. But then it says, it's not because of good works that we've done. And yet, though, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what are we called to? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to do. So guess what? We're set apart from sin, but we are set apart to God to do the good works that God has called us to do. God's got good works as believers for us to do this year. Are we ready to do them? Are we setting ourselves apart from sin? And are we consecrating ourselves to God? Are we setting ourselves apart for God? I appreciate what G.B. Stevens says about this. He says, It is evident that hagios, which is the word for saint, and its kindred words express something more and higher than sacred, outwardly associated with God. Something more than a word in the Greek which means worthy or honorable. Something more than hagnos, which means pure and free from defilement. Hagios, which is the word for saint or sanctify, set apart this way, is more comprehensive. It is characteristically godlikeness. And that's what we are called to be as believers, is to exude godlikeness. And Paul is identifying these believers as saints. Number two, Christians are described here as faithful. He says, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus. These believers were faithful. First, I think it's important that we understand that they're faithful because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't be faithful to God if you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as 
has been described to me and as, as I appreciate it so much that I continue to try to emphasize that when we're talking about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, biblical faith, biblical faith carries with it content, confession, and, con- and, and, and commitment. What's the content? That the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary to save us from our sins, and that he was buried and that he rose again three days later. That we're sinful people before Almighty God and that we need somebody to save us. And Jesus, God the Son, came to save us. Content of our faith. Jesus is the author and finisher of our, finisher of our faith. Our confession that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved. And then our commitment Our commitment to follow Christ all the days of our lives. Thomas is a wonderful example of that. In John chapter 20, we see Thomas's faith. We describe him as doubting Thomas and so on, but he comes face to face with the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus comes and meets with his disciples, but Thomas isn't there, and they tell him all about it, and he says, look, unless I see him with my eyes and touch him with my hands, I won't believe. And a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them, and even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and, see, and look at my hands, reach out and your, uh, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. The content, the confession, the commitment, and Thomas went on to faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ where God called him to preach. But these believers weren't just individuals who placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the key, but that they were persevering Christians, that they were faithful Christians. They were walking with Christ. They were endeavoring to share the gospel with their community, to live their faith in their community, to raise their children, to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. These believers were faithful. They were persevering day in and day out as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Gathering together in regular worship. Learning from God's word. They were characterized as those who did good. In the book of Revelation, we read about the Ephesian church, the church in Ephesus. Unfortunately, by this point, they had lost their first love, and they were challenged to go back to the love that they had at first, the love for the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were commended. He says, I know your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. 
I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. They were faithful, but by this point they had lost their love that they had at first. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember from how far you have fallen and do the works that you did at first. These were faithful believers. They were persevering. And Christians, saints, are to be faithful in serving the Lord, walking with Him, striving. As you look back at 2023, ask yourself the question, as I've asked myself the question, how faithful was I to the Lord? As I look at 2024, my desire is to be increasingly more faithful to the Lord. Faithful personally in my walk with the Lord. Faithful in my service for the Lord. Service to our church family. More faithful in my witness to those around. Thirdly, Christians are identified with Christ. Now, you may not have counted, but I'm going to encourage you this week to do this. Just reread the first 14 verses of chapter 1 as we prepare for next Sunday. And I want you to count how many times the phrase in Christ or in the beloved or something like that dealing with in Christ comes up in just that passage. See, we are faithful saints in Christ. The Bible talks an awful lot about, well, in the New Testament, about being in Christ. Sometimes it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around it. It is difficult theologically to understand how we can be in Christ and He in us. But there's some pictures that the New Testament gives for us to help us to understand it a little bit better. Being in Christ is described as the vine and the branches. If you are, Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And if anyone is in me, he says, will bear much fruit. Let me read John 15. It says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. So you've got that picture of the vine connected to the, or the branches connected to the vine. We can do absolutely nothing if we're not connected to Christ. Nothing of value. Nothing for the Lord. But we're also pictured as a bride and a groom in marriage. Actually, the, Paul calls it a mystery. He says it in this book, in this letter, in chapter 5. This husband is head of the wife in marriage, so Christ is the head of the church. And he says that it's a mystery. There's a picture there that a marriage relationship is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Another description that Paul gives is when talking about the body of believers, that Christ is the head of the body. That we are all members of that body and we all have a particular function, but who is the head? Christ is. He's the one that controls the whole body. That we can't be a thriving body if we're disconnected from the head of that body, Jesus. These are pictures that help us understand a little bit better. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. We can bear fruit as we abide in him. As he's the head, 
He controls us. He leads us. He guides us. We depend on him for our direction, for our life, for everything. And yet all too often we depend on ourselves, don't we? Or we depend on our jobs, or we depend on our skills, or we depend on this or that or the other. But you know what? All gifts spiritually, spiritual gifts, all service abilities that we have come from God through the Holy Spirit. We got nothing without him. That's why it's so important that we are in Christ. I love this quote that I came across. All apart from Christ, our condition is absolutely hopeless. And in him, our condition is glorious to the extreme. Let me read that again. Apart from Christ, our condition is absolutely hopeless. And in him, our condition is glorious to the extreme. Believers are in Christ. Lastly, Paul closes his introduction with this. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we've experienced the grace of God. For those of us that have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've experienced the grace of God. And as we place our faith and trust in Jesus to save us from our sin, to redeem us from our trespasses, to forgive us, we have peace with God. And we have the peace from God. We already talked about that over the holidays. But you know what? We live in a society that desperately needs to hear about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. The saving work of Jesus in their lives. We live in a society and in a community that desperately needs peace with God and experience peace from God. And as the Ephesians needed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the society around them who was pagan and sinful and apart from God, we need to do the exact same thing. We've experienced grace and peace. Are we sharing that grace and peace with those around us? We need to be. I want to close with this hymn. This hymn kept on coming to my mind as I was studying for this particular message. I want us to think about it as we move into our communion time. Some of you might be familiar with this, but I want to read all the, 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 the verses to this hymn. Because as I think about a faithful follower of Christ, a, a saint in Jesus Christ, this hymn came to mind. mind. It's living for Jesus, a life that is true. Striving to please him in all that I do. Just listen to the lyrics of this hymn. Yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. This is the pathway of blessing for me. Living for Jesus who died in my place, bearing on Calvary my sin and disgrace. Such love constrains me to answer his call, follow his leading, and give him my all. Living for Jesus wherever I am, doing each duty in his holy name, Willing to suffer affliction and loss, deeming each trial a part of my cross. Living for Jesus through earth's little while, my dearest treasure, 
the light of his smile. Seeking the lost ones, he died to redeem, bringing the weary to find rest in him. The refrain is this, O Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to thee. For thou in thy atonement didst give thyself for me. I owe no other master. My heart shall be thy throne. My life I give, henceforth to live, O Christ, for thee alone. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, he wants to be your Lord and Savior. He wants to be on the throne of your life. Would you trust him as Savior this morning? And give him your all. Christian, can you say once again, I owe no other master. Can you cry out, my life I give henceforth to live, O Christ, for thee alone. Are we going to live that way in 2024? That's my challenge for myself and for you.